0: Everybody, thanks a lot for being here on this new mini series called 50 Ways on the Brun wagon So, probably everybody out there knows that a, something like two amazing people published another book, 50 Ways of Cycling the Word. So, 50 Ways is there. Cycling on the Brun wagon anyways, the Broomwagon is support to cycling, so it's always there. And so, you all know that I'm talking with belen and Tristan. How are you doing, people?
1: Hey,
2: nice to be back.
1: We are back to deliver what we actually promised last time we talked with you. Remember, we were given hints on this new book and uh, it's finally out.
2: Our covid baby. <laughs> yes. Wait, yeah.
0: yes, yes. wait, 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 wait. You mentioned that. Give me one second. Oh god. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> Uh, here I go. <laughs> this this is the rule. The COVID rule is gonna be in for all this year and probably also next year because the situation doesn't really improve as much as it should. So, but still, money on the sea watch is there. So, do you maybe think people that we are gonna do another interview with all the stories directly told by Tristana Bellan about their book? No, we don't because we decided to do something else. And I will let actually you guys explain to everybody what we are gonna do.
2: All right, so I'll take it away. Uh, Basically, 50 ways to give you a little introduction and summary. This book we created uh, after Bike Life, our own book, which has been on this podcast. And Bike Life for us was our couple travel, you know, a book full of details about the three continents we cycled. It's a really immersive story, but there is one thing missing and one thing that always ached us about it is when we would present it to someone, they would say, oh, yeah, this is all great, and but I can't do it because of fill in the blank. And so we set out, when the pandemic hit, to actually make a book that includes a lot of different stories, ways, so to say, to travel by bicycle, which eventually became 50 Ways to Cycle the World. And it is a book that takes on these 50 different projects from 75 cyclists, from all around the world, that all did a a bike travel, a bike touring or a bike packing experience in a different, unique way. And so we bundled that together in a book to make sure that you can now, you know, give that book to yourself or a family member, friends, or that cousin that's always talking about he he, he or she wants to go uh, to travel by bike, but never does because of something and now you can challenge that because in the book there will be someone with a similar situation who has overcome it and is able to to tell you how you can travel by bike as well.
1: Yeah, so we basically just thought of all the things we've ever heard like well, I cannot, I wish I could do it but I have a dog, I have children, I don't have money, I uh, I have a job so I only have a uh, short holidays. Don't know
2: which bike to take.
1: Yeah, I have a health issue. <laughs> so we basically gathered all of these um, yeah, excuses after all. I mean,
2: yeah, just some of some of them, a, a yeah. lot of different circumstances and just, you know, be able to present that and, and say, hey, if you're in the same circumstance, this person has done it, you can probably do it, too. So that that became 50 ways to cycle the world. And now that it's here, we thought, you know, with the concept that the chapters are built on, which is kind of a Q&A everyone has unique questions and answers to give give information and show the visuals to their photos but it is quite short in the end Uh, everyone has it between six and eight pages and we wanted to give it a bit more juice Uh, not give away too much uh, but you know be able to share some of the deeper stories behind some of these amazing people that uh, are, are included in the book and so we set out to uh, create a mini podcast series with Stefano, the, the cycling podcast legend, <laughs>
3: no, from Switzerland.
2: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, seriously. So, so we um, we 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 did that because we really feel like the stories that you're you're about to hear on this mini series, they're they're so, you know, they're they're unmissable. You can't really miss out on them. And uh, the book gives the introduction, but we wanted to go deeper in this podcast. So, thanks, Stefano, for for <laughs> agreeing with the concept.
0: Uh, all the time and actually I truly believe that having some of your chapters rear in front of my eyes we are really going through stories from amazing people with amazing adventure and with a lot of things to suggest and say in order to inspire everybody of us and actually I think that the concept of the book is just amazing now people you have no excuses even just going out for a couple of days even if you have whatever the excuse it is, you will really find the model to inspire or just to be inspired from. So that's great. And today we are gonna start uh, with the amazing story of Nathan. Of course, I'm not gonna say too much about that because you're gonna hear directly from his voice what it is, but probably we can make a little intro. So, Nathan is Australian. He made two big trips in his life, one in New Zealand and his masterpiece, I call it in this way, in, um, uh, in South America. And actually, is part in your book of the different style of road and unplanned category. Uh, tell us more tell us a bit more to us something like about why you choose this category, why you put this together and probably about the category itself.
1: Yeah so the, the book is actually divided in four sections. We mm-hmm. talk about uh, companionship, about the cycling styles that you can approach also uh, about age and duration. And then the last uh, part of the book is focused on uh, bigger purposes, so people that went on trips that was further than just traveling. So uh, Nathan is part of the styles. He is representing the bikepacking category. But specifically, he, the way that he has been traveling has been very unplanned and just improvised. So this is why he talks about yeah, unplanned trips and off-road paths that you can just take and how, how to approach them. So we thought he was uh, the perfect fit for this after reading about him and talking with him. And he has great photography too. So we thought it was the perfect match.
0: Yeah, 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 and the question that actually pops up in my mind, because really, you're talking about 50 ways. So you're talking with a lot of people, and I think that actually you made a lot of research on how to fill in the different blanks to actually make this amazing book. But how did you find Nathan around? How did you find Nathan as, and you decided him to be the perfect character for this section of the book?
2: Yeah, so we actually compiled a list before we even started this project. Uh, we had a feeling that at some point we had to do something with it and it's a list of all these cyclists that take photos and put them on social media Uh, huge list and at some point when the chance came and we actually started the concept we just sort of uh, shaved it down to the 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 projects that we thought were most worthy of being in the book Mm -hmm. and represented the category that they would represent uh, best and so, yeah, off-road and unplanned for Nathan uh, came into mind when we found him through a video, uh, which was on bikepacking.com, I believe, about his adventure with friends, where actually one of his friends um, fell off a cliff uh, during a, a ride that they were doing, and yeah, it, it's a it's a pretty rough story. But basically, we we um, we found out about about Nathan there. Uh, went went onto his website, uh, saw the photos and the journey that he had been doing up to that point, and we really wanted to talk with him. So then we approached him like everyone else that we eventually chose uh, to be in the book through Instagram, and um, yeah, just kind of started a chat and asked him if he was up for calling, explained a bit of uh, a bit about the concept. And he just turned out to be this amazing, you know, very honest and inspiring guy. That has done an amazing trip with wonderful motivation behind it and just wonderful stories, as you will hear in this uh, in this particular episode. Um, yeah, so when we when we had talked with him uh, about an hour and a half, I think on on uh, the computer, we we just felt really good about it and uh, and decided to to go ahead with it to include him, and we're so happy we did.
0: Yeah, just to finish this introduction actually and get then completely into the mood. Nathan is travelling, or actually travelled into this trip, on a completely off-road setup, following completely off-road... yes, trucks, and going out there in the dirt. And because, actually, if I can remember, he is riding on a steel mountain bike, completely unsuspended. It's a a ECR, yeah. Yes, exactly, a surly ECR, completely unsuspended, really. That's the thing that he did, but with super chunky tires anyways. How are you related? So what do you think about this way of riding the bike, completely off-road, kind of mountain bike, even if it's completely rigid, but still with a complete off-road setup?
1: I, I think we do relate with him a lot right now. Um, we didn't start cycling like that. Like uh, it's, th- it's, actually, <laughs> it's actually the path that we're trying to get to, be closer to what Nathan is actually doing. But... Um, I think it's awesome. Like he, like he's always been defending how bikepacking and actually remote cycling, sometimes there's not even paths that you can follow, it requires a lot of effort, a lot of stupidity sometimes. But um, the, the rewards that you get are very different than when you actually follow existing paths or big roads or just asphalt. So in that way, I, I think we do relate with him.
2: Yeah, a lot, actually, because we're, like Belen said, we're going that direction ourselves more and more. And it's a, a process, a bit of a slow process, but we do feel much more identified with that kind of cycling because it's just it, it, it seems to be a bit closer to what traveling by bike actually encompasses. You know, this, this feeling of connecting with the true locals, uh, really being free to go where you want to go, uh, choose any road you want including the paths and yeah it's something that wasn't normal for us it's starting to become more and more common and we start to favor it so we're definitely in his camp uh, when it comes to cycling approach there.
0: Awesome. So I would say, let's dig into the interview. And maybe something that is worth it to mention, I have to say thanks a lot to Komut for supporting also this spin off of the broom wagon and also for letting us explore everything out there in this way. But I would say thanks a lot, Belen and Tristan. We are going to actually talk, even if it's already recorded, in a couple of seconds again. So thanks a lot.
2: Let's go. Space travel. <laughs> yes. <laughs>
0: As well, and I'm going to say three, two, one, clapping. (laughs) Great, (laughs) super great. Great, everybody. and super happy to be here today because this is a great experiment for several layers. First of all, because probably you're going to hear as well, you heard already the clapping, because here in this, com- this conversation is going to be pretty packed. It's a full room of super amazing people that are going to talk about traveling on the bike and all of them have a great experience. I will start with making a bit something like the honours of explaining everything into this room first of all i think that everybody knows me i'm stefano calamaro for a little bunch of friends and i've been talking and shitty chatting more than writing for five or six years then on the other side we have tristan ebelen hi tristan ebelen
1: hey we're back
2: back again
0: We were promising it to you, right, that we would have done something once the book would have come. So the book is there and 50 uh, broomwagon ways to cycle the word. No, 50 ways to cycle.
2: (laughs) Yeah, like 50 ways to listen to the broomwagon. That's
0: another good one. (laughs) So the book is out and we actually decided together to make... um, F- something like a little mini series of uh, uh, interviews with some of the protagonists of the book. Can you tell me again which one is the name of the book, people? Because I'm going to make a mess all the times.
2: So it's 50 Ways to Cycle the World. Perfect. Uh, it's uh, By the time that you're listening to this, it's available everywhere, so you can immediately go check it. That's but yeah, like awesome. like you said, the, the mini series, this is uh, a really, really, really wonderful thing for us because it adds a sort of nice extra layer to what the book already provides. Uh, it it will go into detail about all the the stories that will be here on the Broomberg and, You know, just being able to present even more detail than the actual story that you'll find in the book. So uh, in today's episode, yeah, <laughs> you'll soon find out who it is. But basically um, the stories in the book, they're they're all introductory. So it's 50 different cycling projects by 75 cyclists from all around the world. And the stories that they tell and the questions we ask and the answers they give should give enough of a push for everyone who's reading to say, hey, you know, I'm in the same circumstances as this particular person who's done this particular cycling uh, travel project and they've done it. So why couldn't I do it? You know, now I have the courage.
0: No excuses, I would say. And, well, we were talking about the guest of today that is down there, down under, or probably we are, it's ourselves that we have actually heads down into this kind of, by the way, hi, Nathan, how are you doing?
3: (laughs) Yeah, I'm doing good.
0: Everything is fine. I would say, oh, where are you basically? Because actually I was talking about down under, so we are talking about Australia, but where exactly?
3: Yeah, so I'm living in a small town called Bonnie Hills. It's four hours north of Sydney.
0: Uh, by the coast, some I'm called Paradise. Oh, wow, 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 wow. The name says everything here.
3: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah.
0: So you were part of... Oh, let me step back, first of all. So as I was telling you people around, this is going to be an amazing conversation between the four of us. So please, I would say it at the beginning. Excuse us if there's going to be overlapping or whatever, but there's going to be so much enthusiasm because the talks with the guests of... The book are going to be so amazing because the adventures of these amazing characters are going to be amazing. So excuse us for that, but everybody of us will be involved in our conversation. Now let's get back into conversation with Nathan. So you were part of the book, Nathan, right? Because you traveled um, New Zealand once with a bike, then a year and a half in South America. But the most important thing is that you were on a mountain bike, right? So this is basically where the niche where I would put your story.
3: Yeah, exactly. So I started, um, just briefly, so I started my trip in New Zealand and I was riding a Surly Troll, which is kind of, oh, I guess you'd call it like a Swiss Army Knife touring bike. Like you can stick to the road if you want. It all depends on what tires you kind of throw on it. Um, And I got that bike for the versatility, but then obviously even by the end of that trip in New Zealand, I was like, I just want to get as far from pavement as possible because um, of a lot of reasons that I'll get to later in the book. Um, but yeah, and then I bought a bike that was a bit more, um, utilitarian that can take on any, um, any terrain. And that kind of came by way of a, uh, another surly bike known as the ECR and that, um, that could fit up to three inch tires. And so all of my trip, wow. um, was completed, yeah, on that bike running three inch tires bar, maybe 2000 kilometers where I had to get a um a 29 by 2.4 inch tire on the back which felt tiny but yeah and that was just so that I could really um I wasn't limited by where my bike could take me um because my bike could go everywhere so that was yeah that was kind of why I went towards that kind of an adventure and because I had the bike it was like I couldn't just ride it on the pavement. It was like, you know, this bike is here for a purpose and I need to use it properly. So,
0: <laughs> that's super great. We're going to go into that. But actually, maybe it would be super beneficial for all of us if you can give us something like a little intro uh, about yourself.
3: Yep. So, uh, my name's Nathan. Everyone knows me as Nathan North in the social media world, but it's uh, my surname is actually Roberts. And okay. it kind of came about this alias. I, I used to call it my adventure alias, and that's what it's kind of taken on, uh, which kind of happened because I graduated university um, becoming a primary teacher, and I changed the name on Facebook and social media to kind of stop the kids finding me, Okay, um, which is, yeah, really, really funny. And then it's kind of taken off from there. Um, but yeah, so I work as a primary school teacher. Um I obviously love traveling. I like gardening and um, being out in nature. Um, I don't often sit still. That's, I don't know, a blessing and a curse in many ways i'm
0: always doing something <laughs> yeah that's i think it's a curse for all of us i don't know uh i don't know i'm talking about myself okay i'm sitting here and sitting in front of my computer too much that i expect but and that they need to do but yeah from time to time you know you need just to stay out and this is the best time of my life and i think as well tristana belen is the same they are sitting there they're making amazing projects or whatever but their real nature is being outdoor there on uh exploring the world on their bike it's a thing it's on the both sides as you were saying it's a good thing isn't a bad thing Think we are kind of this is a curse. We'd like to be outdoor, but still you need to stay in front of some screens or for you it's even better, I think, because you're still engaging with kids on schools and stuff. So for sure, at least in my mind, is a bit more engaging and let's say uh motivating than stay in front of a computer. But yeah, that's my point.
3: Yeah, definitely. And kids are so inspiring, you know. That's like true. coming back from a trip like that and being able to go back into a classroom where I can be myself and I can um talk about these trips and i can you know i don't know it's it's really really beautiful whereas even if i went into like corporate job you know it's like oh okay that's that's really nice but, but yeah now you can do your job whereas i don't know i feel like i can be my 100 percent self in the classroom and it's really lovely
0: yeah yeah you yeah, yeah, yeah. have that job well, I would actually then start from here. Um, as I was saying, I was reading on the book uh, 50 Ways to Cycle the World, and I was reading there, and seems like the first of your adventure with the outdoor, it was some years ago when you were 24, But it was not a trip that started on a bike, but it was a trip that you have made with a super old and a thing with a full load of history and anyways, beaten up van. Tell us more about that. Why did you decide just to take off from your, uh, I don't know, garage with this super old van to start, yes, to start this travel? It was in Australia, right?
3: Yeah, it was, and so it was a really interesting story, actually. My friend sent me this video of these, um, I think it was the trailer for the Mongol Rally. I don't know if you've heard about Oh, of
0: that. course. Yes. It <laughs> that's so bad. yeah, that's so I thought that's something about that. that aren't aware,
3: it's, yeah, it's pretty much, it's a race, and so these people buy, I think you've got to buy a car for under 1,000 quid and drive it from England all the way to Mongol mongolia and i was just so captivated by this idea my friend said we should go do it and i was like stuff that i was like i'm gonna try to do the same thing in australia okay and um yeah and so my partner and i at the time were like all right we've got six months and we're getting out of here um and yeah let's just do like a mongol rally trip around australia um and then as we started working um, we started earning more money and it was like okay like Like, we don't have to do it on such a budget, um, though we were, like, living very, very frugally on the road. Um, But, yeah, this um, Toyota Land Cruiser ended up popping up on the corner, and it was so, yeah, it looked horrible, Um, but it was going for a price point that was very attractive. And so, we ended up buying it, and I tried to do as much as I could to, you know, fix random problems with the car and anything that I couldn't do myself. I, um, I got the mechanics to fix up, and, yeah, before too long, ended up taking up, uh, ended off taking off on that trip, uh, and that lasted about the same amount of time. So I went for twenty months um, and worked my way around Australia. I got a job as a wilderness guide, which is where I got a lot of um, a lot of my confidence in the outdoors from. Okay. Uh, and met a lot of really really inspiring people that helped um, kind of push me into that direction of cycle touring because um, as great as it was traveling. the car um I felt like there was certain things that my experience was lacking um and so following a few people on Instagram that were bicycle touring I kind of narrowed that down to connection with people which I think um was quite limited in the car um and by saying that I mean that you know you have these four walls up and it's traveling in a four-wheel drive like that uh, I just felt like I was going through these communities and rather than people, you know, just coming up and saying hello, it was like, I felt like there was this judgment that, yeah, I'm, I don't know, I'm this, you know, dirtbag, vagabondo, um, or yeah, I don't know. But it was like, I was like living on the fringes. Whereas I felt like if you had a bike and you turned up to the, some of these places, people are just so baffled and amazed that the questions follow. Um and so that was one of the reasons why I was really interested in kind of cycle touring. I, was, I just thought everyone's story was so interesting whereas traveling around in a car it's like oh everyone kind of does that in Australia. I don't know, I just felt it was a little bit different. Um and then also yeah, connection with the landscapes a big one. Um especially over overseas, you know, like that connection with the landscape riding up the hills. In Australia, I could not imagine cycle touring, especially through the desert. Like it just seems so demoralizing. Um, but yeah, so that was another thing. You know, um, with a bike, you can jump fences. In a car, you can't really jump fences. <laughs> yeah of <laughs> so course. So that was a big. Thing. Um, I had this. I wouldn't call it an anxiety that developed, but it was. I was always a little bit nervous wherever I parked, um, just to make sure that I was in a safe place. Um, whereas. Yeah, I kind of started thinking you know, if I was on a bicycle, even though maybe the campsites aren't as often, I can always jump over a fence, be respectful, camp behind some trees, leave early in the morning, not light any fires or anything like that, and um, go on my way the next morning. So yeah, a lot of these, um, I really learned a lot from that trip in my vehicle, um, and that was the direction forward that I took, and I identified... There's a lot of reasons why I liked that trip, but there's also a lot of reasons why I wanted to move forward. And another huge one was the price of diesel. Like, I think I spent probably close to 8,000 Australian dollars on diesel, you know? And that was wow. That's the same as half of my whole trip that I did in South America, which I just thought was insane.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. because at the end of the day, actually, when you are on the bike, you don't need to fool. So, the only tank that you have to fool is your stomach, right? So probably yeah. can be a bit cheaper. And you can get some offers of so people amazing. I mean, uh, people invite them, invite you to their home and chitty uh, chatting, whatever. So you're combining a couple of things together. If you can only fuel your tank, so the tank of your van, then if something happens, nobody would invite you to their, I don't know, gas station to get some gasoline <laughs> for free. You know what I mean?
2: If you put it that yeah. way, it's quite, quite absurd sounding. But it's actually... Yeah. Did the same thing that happens with bike, just the other way around.
3: Yeah. I was just trying yeah, to imagine true.
2: how far eight thousand Australian dollars could get your stomach. Like <laughs> yeah. how many Snickers or or carrots or <laughs> or noodles you can buy from eight thousand Australian dollars.
0: No, it's, yeah, it's absolutely, it's just, and as I was saying, for most, I don't know, this is actually on my experience, you can tell me yours, people, but usually, most of the time, if your tank, I mean, your stomach or your body, whatever, it's completely empty, and you stop in the middle of the road, for sure, you will find somebody will tell you what happens to you, They'll get some bread, or come over to my place, let's have some traditional dinner together.
2: Right on.
1: Yeah.
0: And that's good. You're actually fulfilling your soul, your stomach and everything with good stories, right? On the other And you are going to taste also new flavors. On the other side, if the tank of your van is empty, uh, the gasoline is always safe. There's no traditional gasoline. And actually, traditional gasoline is something only bad that can come into my mind because I can imagine that can destroy your engine. But that's another story. <laughs> Even if I'm thinking that probably also some bad food can waste completely your engine. But that's another story. Um, yeah. The- <laughs> but what about the bike then nathan also that i was because anyways you're talking about this thing really combined it together so you went out with your van you travel around australia you still met a lot of people but you had already in your mind um to make a similar trip with the bike so till that time how was your familiarity or experience with bikes
3: um it was actually i had a really good experience with bikes it wasn't like i was you know, a Shredder mountain bike rider or anything like that, because I kind of – I didn't really grow up riding bikes. Um, I used them as transport in our coastal town. And then when I went to university, um, living on a bit of a budget and having, you know, a motorized vehicle, it was really expensive to keep it on the road. And I ended up um, – there was this guy that lived two blocks behind and he was um, – I don't know what you call them – over in Europe but he was kind of like a bicycle co-op and so we had all these recycled frames um, recycled wheels just everything and you could go there and within a day or two you could pretty much build your own bike from scratch and so I went over to that guy and I was like yeah I'm a uni student I don't have a lot of money I need to build a bike so I can ride to ride to university and I built this bike and I actually ended up getting to university faster than I could with a car by the time I found a park and I could take my bike all the way to the front door of my class. So it really opened my eyes to bicycles being a very, very, very efficient form of transport, um, be it in cities or not in cities. And I rarely got any flats. I learned everything to do with bike maintenance to fix that bike um, that I possibly could. I was running single speed and just one brake. So Everything was so easy to fix and it was so cheap and people would really help you out trying to fix those things whereas I feel like yeah having the car it was yeah when you've got a need you know it's always expensive and I think there's a lot of um a lot of problems that can come with that Yes especially if you're not loaded so
0: Yeah I can see definitely yep. but yeah actually you were talking about this concept I remember that now I'm thinking about my university times as well I was living in Rome and there were many of those places that in Italian is ciclofficina is basically Uh, bicycle workshop, but they were um, workshops that were actually kept by the people themselves, and there we could get all the recycled frame or just taking the frame that were parked outside for, I don't know, 25, 50 years. So once every month we were collecting all of them with the permission of the police and of the state, of course. We were not stealing them. Um, uh, Bringing them there and getting fixed in the bike and we were giving them to the... um, Yes, to people that needed, right? So it was actually the refugees, because we were doing also Italian classes to the refugees and they didn't have any way of transportation or just to kids that could not afford a new bike or to people that could not afford this bike. And actually we're getting, just gathering together, all these parts, building them together and give it to people. It was great experience. I met so many cool people in this way. And I think that you have something similar also there. So it's amazing.
3: Yeah, and like you said, that sense of community that comes from that experience Like for me, it was, it just, it really blew me away. Like, and that really started coming into play as well once I started cycle touring, you know?
0: Yes, yes. People are great, general, greatly generous, and that's an amazing thing when they see you on the bike. Uh, Also there, just to put a couple of things in context, from time to time I found myself hating going on the road with a bike because just you can imagine that people are super aggressive, they don't like um, bicycles on the the road, especially when they are um, on the passes or whatever because they just want to go fast with their fast cars and stuff. And that's the point. But then on the other side, when you just really go out with a bike and you really go into villages and whatever, that happens to me, for example, in Morocco, in Kyrgyzstan or whatever I was, also in Albania, where I was in Albania, people just stop at you, just want to ask a lot of questions. They are just curious of your traveling or whatever. So it's true that from time to time, um, car drivers and everybody can be aggressive, especially when they're in a rush, but they're not aggressive because they're car drivers, just because they are stressed and probably society is putting on their shoulders too much stress. But then, if they can really open their eyes, their kid's eyes, let's put it in this way, they 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 were so they are super happy seeing somebody on the bike and cheer you up or just giving you some support. And that's exactly the community that we are talking about.
3: Yeah, exactly. And I didn't have so many problems in South America on those back roads either. Like, like People were... Yeah, it was incredible. Um, yeah, people would be really patient. And I guess over there, the speed limits are also a lot lower. Uh-huh. In Australia, you know, people drive so fast. They're just so detached that they're actually driving a weapon. Like, it's terrifying. Yeah. We, um, we have
2: another chapter in the book um, about a, a journey across Australia on folding bikes, this amazing couple from Germany. And they were talking about the same thing. Um, yeah. The, the the road trains, like the the yeah. three, oh my God. Three, yeah. three um uh, containers on top of them okay. that can't really stop. So they they
1: have to they, get out of the road, basically. Yeah, it, it takes yeah. so
2: long for them to catch up to the same speed they have if they were to stop fully t- uh, to uh, to pass a, a cyclist. Wow. And that was a really dangerous thing for them. So I I imagine, yeah, you must feel the same if you uh, if you. Uh, where to cycle in australia
3: yeah luckily the the road trains are only really legal in western australia and oh, i think maybe parts of northern territory in south australia but where i'm from there's no um none of those road trains thank goodness but still it's even the people in the smaller cars that are the danger and people on phones as well like it's just
0: of course oh
2: yeah yeah, it's it hard. Counts for cyclists too. In in the Netherlands, you get a uh, a ninety euro fine these days if you're spotted with your phone on the bike, because yeah, it boils down to the same thing. But yeah, if you're in a in a car in this big vehicle that can really really mess someone up, that uh, that's a, a much more dangerous thing.
0: Yeah. 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 Absolutely. Uh, perfect. Then, so we actually can understand which one are the vibes. Actually, your. Um, Two things actually. Your love for bicycle first that came actually like mine as well. Kind of let's say uh, university time. So later is we are not the kind of people that started riding the bike or starting having love for bike when kids. I actually was not. It seems like you neither. It was something like yeah. K- that came later. And then also your uh, thirst of adventure, something like your adventure spirit, and that's super great. So yeah, you came back then after this long trip um, with your van in Australia. I have two questions for you. First of all, where's the van now? The second thing is, how did you start building up your next bike to start your next adventure in New Zealand?
3: Uh, so both questions are very easy to answer. So the um, the vehicle that I travelled in, I actually sold um, as a part of getting the money together for my South America journey. Uh huh. Um, yeah. So. I think I sold it like maybe two or three weeks before I left. So it was really reassuring that I got rid of it because, uh, yeah, for me it was like, you know, now I can complete the whole journey that I had planned. Um, And the other question, oh, where did I build my bike up from? So it was actually really, really funny. Um, I finished my trip in New Zealand and I got back to this lovely lady's house in... Auckland who I was staying with and I had I think five days before I flew back home to Australia and I was just resting there and I just thought oh I'll have a look what's on like the local um like New Zealand bike packing pages and just see if there's any of these bicycles available um that I was planning on doing the trip in South America on because I at that point I'd settled on the idea of South America as the next chapter to the journey yes um yeah, and then so I just put I just put a post on the bikepacking page and said, "Does anyone have either of these bikes? Um, I'm leaving New Zealand in five days, and I plan to ride across South America on it." And there was this guy that got back to me within a few hours. His name was Simon. I'm still in contact with him actually, um, and he was like, "Hey mate, yeah, I've got I've got that bike. I'd be willing to part with it for what at the time was quite reasonable." um you can pick it up like tomorrow or the day after or something I was like perfect and he ended up driving like three hours to meet me at like a mid meeting point because it was six hours between Auckland and the town where he was from um and so we got this car park and I test rode this bike and I was like yep rides perfectly I was just absolutely in love with these three-inch tires I felt like you think like a fat bike wouldn't go that fast, but these three-inch tires, when they were pumped up, that thing just used to roll so well. Uh-huh. And so I was just – it was the most comfortable bike I'd ever ridden. Like It was like I was riding a lounge chest. And I was gave him the money then, and I actually had $100 less, I think, than he was asking for. And he actually let me pay it by sending $100 in an envelope. Um, wow. By a post, yeah, he was – incredible guy because i think what happened was my credit card i could only withdraw a certain amount and and he was happy for me to post the rest to him before i left so i got so so lucky yeah 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 and so i flew out of new zealand with two bikes and then bought the troll home and bought the ecr home and then yeah over the next i think it was six months i started sewing up all my bags and really getting ready for south america
0: but how much how much time gap there was between one trip and the other so between uh, uh, new zealand so you are in new zealand you're flying back to australia you're setting up your baggage uh, your luggages, and you go to south america how much time passed between these three events i
3: think it was five or six months i yeah. got back in I think it was around April, and then I ended up teaching for ten weeks. I got really, really lucky and got work. Um, so I ended up teaching for ten weeks, and then at the end of that term, um, I was leaving. So yeah, it was about five five months, I think.
0: Okay. Yeah. Wow, not so much time at yeah, the end to set up all no, the things.
3: And, yeah, and I really wanted to keep it that shorter time period as well because yeah, traveling was still really fresh. Um, and I was so inspired to be out on the bike and I didn't want anything to get in the way of that so yeah, it worked quite well actually
0: Yeah uh, Let's stick for one second to, to the New Zealand so why did you decide actually to go with this trip in New Zealand and how was it?
3: Um, so I decided on the trip to New Zealand for a few reasons um, it was an English-speaking country there was an existing bikepacking route that pretty much traverse the length of the country okay um i always wanted to go there because it just looked so so beautiful um and oh and it was a cheap flight as well because it's okay. so close to australia so yeah 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 so that was reasons
0: and there was actually a couple of months right two months trip
3: it was yeah two and a half months oh and obviously the crazy beauty that's in new zealand it's such a beautiful place and so are the people they're absolutely amazing yeah
0: that's perfect so they're my reasons yeah yeah Yeah. it makes a lot of sense so it seems like actually you got used to that you got i would say rudy something like trained on that or whatever then you started or you left for the one that I called in my notes, your bicycle masterpiece, and is your trip to, to South <laughs> America. Uh, tell, tell us more about all the concept, why you decided to go there, why you decided to get that bike, because it seems like also in your mind, the idea of having a mountain bike, ah, by the way, uh, just a little technical question, is it a full suspended or a rigid mountain bike?
3: Uh, it's fully rigid, so yeah, there's no suspension at all, yeah. so... The idea was that the bigger tires um, with a little bit less pressure can kind of accommodate for some of those bumps and that that you do take.
0: Yes. Okay, perfect. So you had already in mind the kind of trip that you wanted to have completely, almost completely off-road on a rigid mountain bike with fat, chubby tires. So it seems like everything was already in your mind. You went back to Australia, you worked for a bit, collected money, put your bags together and then you went to uh, to South America with already something super clear in mind. Tell us a bit more on how the concept came out and how and when and why and everything, basically. Uh,
3: yeah, so it was actually heavily inspired by a few people that I was following at the time and I was in, um, in contact with. One of them uh, you might know... His name's Tonelli. His Instagram name was Gone Bike Fishing.
0: Of course. Yeah, and,
3: yeah, and he had a remarkable journey through the Andes. Um, and I feel like, yeah, I must have asked him over 150 questions in like three months. It was just ridiculous. Every day I'd send him a new question about something. And it wasn't just like – it wasn't roots or anything like that. It was just Like, because he he the way that his brain works was just incredible. And so, you know, just things that I thought about that do I need this and do I need that? And how can I do this to make this lighter or blah, blah, blah. And so he was really reassuring and he helped me a lot with roots and things like that. Um, So that was a heavy inspiration for the trip. Um, And just the photos that he took, I was like, that's, you know, that's where I want to be. And so yeah, he obviously predominantly rode um, gravel roads and hiking trails and things like that. So a lot of inspiration came from him. Another guy was um, Justin Bill, who you might have also heard of. Um, who's a bit of a, he seems like a bit of a phantom, but he's all also been, yeah, a big inspiration of mine. Um, and then, yeah, there was a few others, um, Martin Dulyard, um, who's also known on Instagram as Spiritu Libre. I always thought that he took amazing photos, but also the way that he blogged and um and kind of told his story. I thought he was just such an incredible storyteller, and also um, Johan Bike Wanderer. And so. Yeah, after like following these people's journeys and they were all coming south. Oh, they were all going south except for Tonelli. Tonelli was going north. And so, yeah, just being in contact with those people and, um, yeah, going over to South America. um, Yeah, for me it was like, you know, it's a rugged place and it's going to be hard, but this is the kind of trip that I want. And, yeah, that was – i guess that's what i was looking for
0: yes and how did you drive your route I, actually this is something that i'm pretty curious of everybody uh, who bike packs but how did you actually decide for the route that you wanted to follow did you ask did you have something in mind and then you just follow it like a plan or you were just changing from time to time just being inspired by suggestions of people or everything
3: yeah i think it um i think it changed so much you know like you start the journey and my plan within two years was to get to Alaska and it quickly changed because once you get there, it's like, I'm not going to ride this route if I'm not enjoying it. So, of um, I started out with this idea that I just wanted to ride every single bike packing route ever made. Um, and then I quickly decided like, no, like there's so many, uh, there's all these other routes that you can take that haven't been documented. Um, and just because they're not an official route, it shouldn't steer you away from riding them. Um, so, yeah, so I followed a lot of bikepacking routes, uh, official ones off the website. Um, I used some of Tonelli's trails um, that he didn't ever publish. Um, sometimes I'd just look at people's Instagrams and see where they kind of tagged places, and I'd look for rivers or streams and um, and kind of trails that they might have ridden on. Um, there was also a big section through Bolivia, um, that wasn't really mapped quite well. Um, so I used a lot of satellite images for that, um, mainly to find trails and to link places up better. Um, but also more importantly for water sources and things like that, um, which I was actually taught how to do from Telly, uh, and Johan when I was in um Santiago um and then in Peru like a lot of Peru's quite well documented you'd be so surprised like South America it seems like it's really remote place and it is but there's people's tire tracks expanding all these different parts of the whole continent and it's crazy to know how much of it's been ridden um but yeah by the time we got to Peru and we'd finished the Peru divide there was um, like, we're using Camute, actually. A okay. lot of Camute routes. Um, yeah. And so we just kind of, because we were actually, my friend Xavi and I, um, we were trying to get out of Peru. We rode Peruvian rainy season and it was just absolutely horrendous, but it was absolutely amazing as well. But okay. we were on a mission. So for, for Camute, it was like, you know, there's this direct route, it's gravel, there's a bit of pavement, um, but, you know, we could be, yeah in a certain place in a certain amount of time and so that was really attractive for us at the time because we were just getting smashed every day. So yeah, we're like, we need to get out of here, but we want to enjoy it, but we don't want to be here forever. So yeah.
0: Yeah, Uh, okay. And then
3: also what at mouth as well. So you meet people and then if they're travelling in a similar way, um, they'll often tell you different places that they've been as well. And so um I met up with Guillaume and Kai, who you might have heard of, um, Guillaume ran the Instagram page of Dirt and Clouds and so he used to take these incredible um, photographs with his partner and another guy called Kai and they used to just go find hiking trails or just yeah have a look on satellite images and they would just the stuff they did was the most relentless things I've ever seen anyone do on fully rigid mountain bikes like they they would have fun by pushing their bike up mountains for like a day to ride an hour of single track it was just insane but from them i also learned like there's a lot of pleasure in that pain and just earning that um earning earning that single track at the end of the day yeah So, yeah, I don't know. Does that answer your question?
0: It definitely did, actually, because it tells us, it draws us completely your approach to cycling. It's just being out there, having a plan, but be ready also to try to discover everything that you have around, right, and enjoy and absorb all the beauty that is over there. And that's super great.
3: Yeah, and I think if you've got a plan, like you take – you take things for granted because, you know, you're so regimented in your way um, that nothing, you know, nothing else or this time limit really impacts on that. But it was really nice not having the time limit and just putting it all down to, I'm just going to go there. I'm going to ride across this country. Um, The original plan was to get to Alaska, but that quickly um, wasn't feasible because I just, all I wanted to do was be on the gravel roads. And um, I'll talk about that more later, but yeah. There's so many reasons why I just prefer to ride those kinds of roads. So yeah. yeah, obviously the nature is a huge aspect, traffic's a huge aspect, but yeah, there's so many.
0: Um, yeah, maybe just to give us a bit of context, can you just tell us roughly which one was your your track? Something like you started from, you arrived at, to, passing by.
3: Uh, so I started in, oh, what was it, Puerto? Almost forgotten it. Uh huh. No, Punta Arenas in okay. Chile. Okay. So I started in Punta Arenas in Chile and then I wanted to fly down at Ushuaia, but it was like a 600 Australian dollar flight. So it was really expensive because you're crossing it from Chile to Argentina. Um, So I ended up riding down to Ushuaia to get to the bottom. Yeah. Uh, I camped out there a few days and then rode all the way north. To I finished my journey a day and a half from Bogota because my whole back wheel exploded and I was like I'm not getting it fixed I'm <laughs> I'm
0: done after <laughs> I'm two years. And
3: relaxing in Bogota. Don't I don't know. care about this endless
0: line. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's uh, that's super great. That's super great. So yeah, starting yeah. from Chile, going down and then coming up till uh, to Bogota. How many kilometers? Do we have something in mind?
3: Yeah, so I have a rough estimate. Yeah. Um. That was, I think, probably a bit more than seventeen and a half thousand kilometers.
0: Wow! Yeah. Wow. Seventeen and a half thousand. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Oh wow, man! It's so stunning. Uh, we are gonna go through some of the highlights and lowlights of uh, of the trip of uh, yes of your trip now. But I want to ask you just a couple of super technical questions. Actually, there are three technical questions. First of all, can you describe for me a bit your setup? of the bike so how many luggages you had and everything like this
3: yeah um so what the luggage looked like it actually changed halfway through the trip mm-hmm. um so for reasons that i'll explain so i started off with there was a really big bag that i had on the front um on the front rack that was made of um it was 1000d cordura which is pretty much like canvas um and that was being waxed using. The next door neighbors um, wax from their bees. Mm-hmm. Um, so I sewed up that bag. I had a frame bag. Um, I had a oh, I guess you'd call it, I think they're called saddle bags, but we used to, yeah, we used to just call them boner bags because they were like this tail like wagging off the back. Um, wow, so I had I'm a boner good. bag and then um it's amazing. and then on the front. Forks, There were two cargo cages, um, two of the Blackburn Blackburn cargo cages. Um, there was a Blackburn cargo cage on the bottom tube running down, and then I had two drink bottle cages that was strapped to the to the fork. Uh, the seat seat
0: stays. it's oh, so the seat yeah. stays. Oh wow. Right.
2: Okay. Yeah. can Nathan? Yeah. Can i just ask you how how that turned out for you because it's uh I've, i'm seeing it more and more that people put yeah. their water bottles there but how yeah. how stable is that when it's actually attached because i'm assuming it's not uh attached to any screw holes it's just attached by by like straps or something like that
3: yeah well if you're lucky like depending on your bike you can um sometimes get one of the rear dropout uh sometimes there's a bolt there that you can put in so then it's just a matter of yeah, securing it with that one bolt and then putting a hose clamp around it um which i from my memory that was the way that i did it um but many other people just put two hose clamps on it and i found it was secure with the bolt but i don't know it just seems a bit sketchy especially if you're you know going down some of these mountain descents really really fast and there's a lot of corrugations and stuff to be relying um on those drink bottles not falling into your wheel i just thought that'd be super dangerous so the way that i did it for me it worked in my head um but other people they do it differently and i can't recommend doing it if there's not a bolt kind of holding it in place because i just feel there's too much to lose if that whole drink water bottle whatever you've got there falls into your wheel and just rips apart your wheel and probably your face after you fall off a cliff
0: like yeah <laughs> also yeah let's say best case scenario yeah. in this tragedy catastrophe scenario is that you're just losing yeah. your water bottle the all water that you have and you can stay for hours in the middle of nowhere without water and this is not so good as well
3: yeah exactly exactly so everything yeah, that was kind of on my bike. There was a purpose for it. And if there wasn't, I eventually got rid of it. So so, so yeah. for
2: you, it, it did work, those water bottles. You uh, you managed oh, them.
3: Yeah, well and truly. And I actually really needed those water bottle, uh, that option to be able to store water there, especially when I got to northern Argentina, northern Chile and Bolivia.
2: Yeah, I can imagine it's super dry and yeah. arid. So you, you, yeah. you really depend on having that much water with you. I had a yeah. I don't want to say similar experience because it was by no means similar. But when I was in uh, in Italy last November, uh, cycling around with a bikepacking setup as well, I didn't have the 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 bottles on the on the seat stays like you did. But I brought like a fanny pack that I was carrying the drone in, and it had these straps on the sides that allowed to slide two water bottles on uh, or one uh, water bottle on either side. And I really I noticed that I really, really depended on that because it was it was um uh the fall season it was rather cold. Uh I couldn't find water everywhere and also full on COVID, so you know, couldn't go just into a restaurant or and ask. Yeah. So I, I noticed how difficult it was to uh with with a kind of minimalistic bikepacking setup to actually think about your water. And this was one of the things that I admired about your journey the fact that you actually managed logistically to get everything uh, together quite well and not you know die out there
3: yeah yeah and i think also considering like i was really limited by my budget like these days you know you can go buy a tent and you can get all these things that are so ultra light and take up barely any space and ride these routes with a bike that weighs probably 10 kilos less than what i had You can dehydrate your food and all that. But for me, at the time, it just wasn't an option, you know? Like, my sleeping bag just had to do the job. Um, I had all these things and they just had to do the job. And that was just, you know, that's how much space I needed. And same as my friend that I rode that route with, um, Toby. Like, we just had to make it work. And it just did. Yeah.
0: Yeah, Yeah, that's great. Yeah. Um, Just another question about this uh, sit-stay position for your water. Is it the sit-stay let's say, solid enough to bring all this weight? Because I can see that actually your water bottles were a couple of liters, I would say. So we're talking about two kilos for sides. Is, in your opinion, just out of curiosity, how, what was your feeling on that?
3: Um, so the seat stays, like, towards the end of the trip, I had uh, 1.5 liter Nalgene bottles there. Um, often they weren't completely filled, and the only time that they were completely filled was if um if we if we found like a river or a stream or something just before we we're planning on camping and we just fill up as much water as we could so that we could you know wash off cook our meal like live a little bit luxuriously with a little bit more water so that's the only time that they were really uh filled with water but when I was in um Northern Chile and all that. Um, I wasn't really carrying any more than a liter.
0: Okay, okay.
3: On those days, yeah. 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 Uh,
0: but you were telling us that actually you changed your setup in the middle of, or more or less, uh, during your trip. What happened and why you did
1: it?
3: Yeah, so um, I left a lot of the colder temperatures. I'd still face really cold temperatures, um, but I collaborated with Cedar Summit and so I ended up getting um, a sleeping bag replaced so I got a really good quilt Um, I ended up buying a lightweight tent um, and I had a bit of my other gear that was becoming obsolete Um, I got rid of that and I ended up just getting rid of all this stuff that I didn't need and I think I shaved might have been 7 or 8 kilos in the end oh wow yeah just yeah just Got rid of all this weight, got rid of extra clothes. My mom came and visited, so she got to take a lot home. Um, I got rid of my rack and a few other things. And, yeah, and so that ended up looking like I had a front roll, um, two fork bags at the front that were on the cargo cages. Mm -hmm. Um, On one of the cargo cages at the front, I think I had a drink bottle. Actually, I definitely had like a drink bottle mount. Um, and then I still had the cargo cage on the, um, the bottom tube. I had my frame bag, uh, the boner bag was still working. So I had that still. And then I had the, um, the toilet tube cargo cages as well that my friend Kai gave me. So yeah. And that was pretty much everything I needed.
0: That's super awesome. That's super awesome. The other, so yeah. basic, but That's a question that actually pops up in my mind without uh, so much order. The bike, it was still, right? A steel bike.
3: Yeah, yeah. So
0: perfect. Okay, just for me to visualize everything. So you're still a full rigid mountain bike with all the bags on top. Yes. And still talking about technical things. How was, even if I think that actually flying from New Zealand to Australia was more difficult because you had two bikes, but how was actually to fly for you from Australia to uh, South America and back with a super full and solid bike with a lot of luggage? How was it? Do you find any problem there flying instead of riding?
3: Um, It's funny that you say that because I thought it would be one of the most stressful things of the whole journey. But... It's actually, it's, I feel like it's really therapeutic, especially at the end of the trip when, you know, it's like, Oh, I've just got to get this bike home. Um, but yeah, I've I've seen a lot of horror stories and things, but no, it's quite easy. So you just go to the local bike shop, um, you get a bike box. They never usually have the size that you need, especially if you've got a bike with tires. So it's, you know, you're always going to have to compromise a little, um, But, yeah, the way I would kind of pack it was I'd take off my front wheel. Um, I'd just take off my handlebars. I'd um, put a bit of cardboard in the brakes. (coughs) I'd tape up the derailleur um, and any other parts like the disc brakes, things that you don't want to get hit. And you just kind of like make, um, I guess, padding around the box to um, stop any important parts breaking yeah the derailleur is the most important one um so yeah and then when you've after you've done all that you weigh your bike and you get the perfect weight whatever it is i think mine unloaded was about 15 kilos so then you stuff eight kilos worth of jumpers and sleeping bags and camping gear um in that box including all your knives and things like that that they'll confiscate if you take on as um, carry-on luggage and yeah and so you can get all that in there and, and that kind of um yeah like i was saying before it really cushions it so if the bike is being knocked around it protects it a little bit more um, just making sure that nothing can move around in there as well so uh, i had a lot of dry sacks and stuff to put gear in so that didn't move around a lot um but yeah you really don't want things rubbing on your frame so if you can frame or any other part of the bike so if you can shake that box and you can hear things you need to go in with more sticky tape and um yeah make sure things aren't moving because if things move that's when things start breaking so yeah and then everything else just went in my carry-on um so i carried a 30 liter backpack on the whole journey as well um just sat in my frame bag and so i just carried that on as my carry-on luggage and yeah all the rest of the stuff that i had kind of went in that all the electronics and that so yeah
0: yeah yeah. talking about electronics were you relying on a dynamo or two dynamos or um power banks and stuff
3: yeah so at the start of the trip i actually had a solar panel um which was really good so the start of the journey um i wasn't really paying much for accommodation i think yeah there was (laughs) i was living very frugally okay um so yeah, the solar panel was really, really helpful for that. Um, we find power um, points and stuff to charge things every once in a while, but it wasn't very reliable. And if we were at a place with a power point, we weren't there for very long because we were just having lunch or something. And, you know, those power banks, they need a lot of time to charge. So um, so I started with a power bank and I think it was only like 10000 What do they call it?
2: MAH? Yeah, milliamps. Milliamps. yeah. Yeah,
3: Yeah. so the first one was 10,000 milliamps and I had my solar panel and that worked really well until I got to the end of... Oh, until my mom came and visited in Peru. And so, yeah, I used that for a really long time and I could actually charge my stuff while riding if I mounted the solar panel. I didn't have to do it a lot, but... Um, as the solar panels started kind of fading away and breaking, um, it became, um, more frequent. I started to use it more, um, while I was riding and after I got to Peru, I gave that away for free and I just got a huge power bank and got rid of my small power bank that wasn't working so well. Um, yeah, and just relied on one power bank and we, by the time we got to Peru, Accommodation was cheap, food was cheap. So often, um, if we got to a town late in the afternoon, we'd stay there. So, um, yeah, so you could plug it up and everything would be charged. So, a lot more rest days in Peru as well because the mountains are just huge.
0: Okay. So yeah, that's what is another thing that I wanted to ask you still about technicalities. Uh, you're basically where you were sleeping. So, so it was actually, you answered it to my question at the beginning. It's what, it was a bit more camping and with your tent, sleeping outside. And then once you are gonna, you approach the end of your trip, it was a bit more of staying in, I don't know, guest house places or whatever, villages.
3: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It was very, um, it was very dependent on the budget and at the start of the journey I was planning on getting all the way to Alaska. So I was living very, very frugally, um, lots of camping and things. And also like, it's so strange being back in Australia because over there, there was just abandoned buildings. There was refugios everywhere. Um, yeah, there was always like, there was always places to sleep undercover. Um, and so I didn't even have to pitch the tank, could just lay down the sleeping mat and, um, and my tent, uh, like, floor mat. Um, yeah, and just set up and cook and just sleep, yeah, kind of under the open sky but in a building. Um, yeah, and then I think, yeah, it was once I got to Bolivia, um, once a week or so, I'd just stay in a guest house and make sure things were charged and have a half-rest day and then kind of carry on yeah. the next morning.
0: Yeah, that's yeah. really great. Um. Okay.
1: I have a question, one more technical question. I was wondering because yep. you you did sew some of the bags that you took with you, so I was wondering if you actually had any knowledge about making bags before you made those and eventually how they kept up.
3: Um, that's actually a really good question. So I didn't have a lot of experience sewing. like I would by no means call myself a professional sewer. Um, but I did make a pencil case when I was in year seven or year eight uh, at school. I think I was like, <laughs> I was 13 or something. Very young. And my mother wasn't too bad at sewing when I was young. Like if I ever got cool op shop pants, like secondhand pants that I needed taking up or things, she could always do that. So yeah. So I just decided I was going to use her sewing machine to sew up all these bags. And because the fabric was so thick and because it was waxed and I was using all her like really expensive cotton, I snapped like 15 needles. But I, to this day, I've still got all of the gear that I sewed up for that journey. The front bag is still amazing. Um, the frame bag is like almost like the day that I left; it's still held together, barely has a scratch on it. Um, all my stem bags are really, really good, um, and that's the beauty of traveling in a country like South America. There, everything can be repaired. So even if you know the stitching did come undone, I could spend like you know, one euro, and you'd have the problem solved in five minutes. So, yeah, it was all really, really basic stitching. Um, I tried to avoid zippers as much as possible. So my frame bag was roll top. The bag that I had at the front was roll top. Um, yeah, because I just – I have this thing about mechanical parts. So the less mechanical parts, you know, the less chance there is of having these problems um, or mechanical failures. So, yeah. Yeah. Were they waterproof
2: enough for the the weather in South America?
3: I was actually blown away. So the canvas itself was supposedly waterproof, but then by the time I beeswaxed it, um, it was all super waterproof to the point where I didn't put um, anything in dry sacks that were in my frame bag, um, but anything in the front bag I would put in um, dry sacks. But usually that was all pretty dry anyway. So yeah I never really had a problem with gear getting wet inside of my bags nice I think it's
2: yeah. a really cool aspect of of your your journey and just your your general going at it the fact that you made those bags yourself and that they kept up that's amazing, yeah, especially you. considering that it's it's getting a bit more popular i feel to to make your own thing you know the DIy bag yeah uh, approach so you you must have been one of the the earlier ones, uh, to do that. And it's really cool that you've proven that it works.
3: Yeah, thank you. Um, yeah, there wasn't a lot of plans and things out when I kind of started, but I just kind of looked at bags that I did like the look of and that I thought were quite practical or functional and just took the best of what they had and then other ideas that I had in my head as well. So, yeah. Nice. Great. Yeah, it worked good. I definitely recommend it. And it's such a fun journey creating it. And then when people also see it as well, people get so stoked on just seeing this, <laughs> like, yeah. Like, my bike was so unique. Like, so many people would say, like, it literally looks like you've just rolled out of a Mad Max film because there's just these grey bags covered in like, It was so cool. It was always, yeah, lovely traveling with, yeah, a bit of authenticity.
2: Yeah, it's very nice how you
3: create yeah. that.
2: We, we have a, another chapter in the book um, of a guy who basically made his own bike. Wow. And he is saying in the chapter that it's actually a really good exercise to, to make your own bike from scratch, whether you do it all by yourself or together with a company, because you learn how to create your bike, how to put it together. And so you will also learn uh, instantly how to repair pretty much everything on your bike. Because you put it together yourself, so you know where everything goes, and if something breaks, what you have to take out and replace. And I'm guessing it's a bit similar for your bags, even though there weren't so many mechanical parts. You put them together yourself, so you know how to go at it when they need repair.
3: Yeah, exactly, exactly.
0: Yeah, this is actually the full philosophy of the fixed gear movement, right? So you put together a super easy bike, you put it yourself. So when you are in your shift, if you are a bike messenger, a bike courier, you can fix it yourself and continue working, right? But something is doing it into the city with a super easy bike, and then you take it to the extreme on doing your own bags and doing your own full bike packing bicycles for traveling. Outdoor for so many years. That's why it's so fascinating. I so love it. It's great
3: Did you guys ever hear about that bamboo bike willy? I... Bamboo bike what? Bamboo bike willy? No, no but uh, we're, oh, so... we're luckily behind the computer, yeah, so we're, we're gonna we're already look it up, typing it up. Ooh, Yeah, crazy. oh you won't find anything so <laughs> Bamboo bike willy he was this guy. I never met him personally, but he was friends with a lot of my friends that I met in South America and so this guy was that epic that he made – I think he was a German engineer or something, but he made his own bamboo bike and then sewed up all of his own bags um, and he was riding some of the most remote trails, some of the most remote single track, hiking trails, everything. Like it was just absolutely ridiculous and everything that he had pretty much, he made himself to the point of like he made his own tent. Like
0: Wow.
2: wow,
3: (laughs) Yeah. awesome yeah. that, that's a lost art that's a lost art yeah. yeah and it's yeah he's like an enigma it's like where is he or what's he doing and no one knows but yeah Micah Adama actually uploaded a picture of his bike on his Instagram which is L Tarumara uh, mm-hmm. with an underscore between L and Tarumara um, so there's a picture there from like two years ago of Bermu bike Willie's bike and it's just yeah it's so cool yeah
0: i'm checking for it right now sorry for everybody there listening to us we are doing some uh, hardcore bike packing yeah. on instagram nerding
3: <laughs> everyone else should have a look as well if they've got a phone handy because it's yeah it's absolutely phenomenal he's got this setup where like he can have his boner bag and then underneath it he's got like a dual bottle cage mount Mm-hmm. and because he was so tall he could do that because the clearance between the wheel and the boner bag like would allow it it just yeah the guy, the way the guy thought it's just I don't know it's really nice meeting a lot of these creative people as well because it inspires you to be more creative and to solve those problems that you're dealing with every day on the bike like whether it's a draw cord that's too long or you know just these very basic things so yeah, yeah.
0: anyways I'm gonna look for it uh, with a bit more... Let me take out my phone for my hands. I'm going to look for it with a bit more time and I'm going to put it in the description yeah. below. We have time for that. Um, yeah. Another thing that I wanted to ask you, what about two things that are pretty basics, but I think that actually from time to time you need to deal with. What about with food, of course, and with the language? How did you get along with that in South America?
3: Um. Yeah, good question. So... I'll start with the language by saying that it was so, so difficult. So I went over there with barely any Spanish and the intention was to come back fluent and I didn't come back fluent. I came back with, um, a very basic conversational level of Spanish. Mm -hmm. Um, I think the roots that I chose probably didn't help with that aspect because there wasn't a lot of people. Um, and I bet because, you spoke more
2: llamas than uh, than people.
3: Yeah, pretty much. And then even when you did meet people in the high Andes or those more remote parts, um, they they speak Quechua or other indigenous languages ah. as well. Okay. So often, like I'd try to speak to them in Spanish, and I'd have no idea what they're saying. And wow, sometimes that was due to me not speaking good Spanish. But then I never knew because I'd always be second guessing myself because. Um. yeah, sometimes these people, you know, they, they know three or four languages before they know Spanish. So it's just, yeah, so I found that was really difficult. Um, in Chile and Argentina, they're arguably two of the worst places to learn Spanish um, because you've got all the accents and then you've got people just speaking so fast. So that's common. That's
0: common for any language. I would say I don't know. Probably here, Belen can back me up, but also Spanish people speak really fast.
1: I think we speak just fine. You just need to accelerate your hearing. (laughs)
3: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. 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 Yeah. So strangely, by the time I got to Bolivia, my hearing had accelerated, and I knew what I was listening (laughs) for. Um, No, the Bolivian people just spoke a lot slower and. Um. yeah and I sat down and I actually did two weeks worth of lessons there and that really really helped um, would, would you say yeah, to and, anyone um, starting
2: a South American journey follow two, le- two weeks of Spanish lessons before you go
3: oh 100% I'd almost say do two weeks and then go for yeah three four months and then get another two weeks of lessons and that's the thing if you're going from north to south I think there's so many things in your favor. Like you've got cheap lessons in Colombia, you've got cheap lessons in Peru, cheap lessons in Bolivia. So there's, you know, even if it's just, you know, you're having, um, having a break at a guest house and, you know, you just want to get a couple of hours of Spanish in. Like, I just think it works. Yeah. So much better. And I really wish that, yeah, I just flew into Bolivia and did um, even a month or two worth of Spanish lessons. And then, yeah. And then started the journey from down South. Um, From
1: what you're saying, there seems to be a big economical difference between Argentina and Chile and the more northern countries, right? Because you keep on… Yeah, and that's why. Yeah, okay.
3: Yeah, Yeah, it was much cheaper to do Spanish lessons in Bolivia. So, yeah, and so that's the main reason. And also because um, I think once you know what you're listening for, like once you do get to Argentina and there's the accent or you do get to Chile and they're speaking really fast at least you can kind of tell people like, can you slow down? I'm just learning how to speak Spanish.
0: Yeah. 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 I can say it's also in German and it helps. Yes.
3: (laughs) Yeah. So I don't know, like, that's just the way that I look back at it and I would love to learn more Spanish, um, as my life goes on and I ride bikes more. Um, but yeah, I just felt like, I got to the end of, not the end of the trip, but maybe like a year in and I just felt so overwhelmed trying to learn it all and just being able to have like a basic conversation with someone or tell them that, you know, I was having a horrible day and I just, yeah, especially when I was alone, it was so hard because I just couldn't tell them how bad my day was or not that I complain a lot, but yeah, even just questions like, you know, is there water ahead or things like that, yeah. I did learn all that, but yeah, I guess being understood. It's hard to be understood if you can't speak the language.
0: Absolutely. And anyways, I don't know if people know, probably somebody who listened to this podcast knows, but before I was working for this company called Babel, Application for Learning Languages, usually applications are good for learning at least the basics. Even if I would say yeah. go for Duolingo because it's free and it's really good. But yeah. I,
2: I can 100% recommend Duolingo. Yes. Throughout this whole pandemic year, I've been doing Duolingo... About 10, 20 minutes every morning. Yeah, it's enough. And it's helped so much bring context to the language uh, and just to k- kind of train the vocabulary and the grammar a little bit. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah. Yeah, vocabulary is yeah. great in this way. And then there are so many techniques for learning the vocabulary. But yeah, as you were saying at the end, Nathan, it's the most important thing is to be understood. You don't need to be perfect in grammar.
3: Yeah, and Lingo was really helpful. And I did get onto a really good run when I started. Um, but then, yeah, obviously, I just hit this patch and didn't have reception for like two months. Like, I'd get reception every once in a while, or like I had to keep my phone battery on. Oh, phone on airplane mode so that I could, you know, keep battery. So it just became this thing, and it was like I don't know, a bit prohibitive yeah. in many ways. But yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. I, I wonder if before you sorry.
2: you uh, you met a few quite a few cyclists throughout your journey, right? And yeah, you, you probably must have felt relieved in this aspect to speak a bit of your own language again and maybe try to get some details on routes ahead or give details to, to people that were going the other way.
3: Yeah, for sure. And so, yeah, encountering people on the road going the other direction, yeah, it was really nice. Very rarely, though, um, I met people that were kind of riding the same routes. It's Yeah, it was really, really interesting. Um, the only places I really ran into cyclists going the other direction were when I was riding the Peru Divide and when I was riding the Carretera Austral in Chile. Right, yeah. Yeah, and then besides that, it's like, wow, where are they all? And then you get to a town and it's like, oh, there's five cyclists here. And it's like, which way did you guys take? Oh, which way did you guys take? And, yeah, it was just so interesting. Um, So, yeah, and then I got really, really fortunate that It is quite a small world, the adventure cycling community, especially when you're over in South America. And so often, like, you're following someone's trip who's already there or you know someone that's going a different direction, blah, blah, blah. And so the first person I rode with um, was Toby. And Toby, like, hands down, one of the best people, if not the best person I've ever met in my life, like, most humble, like, giving person. Um, And... Yeah, just this incredible attitude to life and just never, ever, ever gave up, persevered and, yeah, very, very strong cyclist too. And so we kind of met each other and I started my journey with a friend, Clayton, Um, who was a friend that I, I literally called him up one day and I was like, mate, I'm going over to South America in three months. If you want to come, you can. I'm riding my bike and I want to ride it all the way to Alaska, like come for as much as you can. He's like, yep, sounds good. I'm in. <laughs> and so, yeah, he ended up like buying all the gear. And Ooh, wow. yeah, it was absolutely mental. But we rode for two months. And I met Toby the day before Clayton left. Um, and I'd had my eyes on this route by Tonelli that went through Parque Patagonia on this predominantly hiking trail um, section of track. Um, anyway, it was huge. It was just this major like hiker bike suffer fest and Toby was keen to do it and so we both did it. It was absolutely amazing as well, but there was a lot of hiker bike and our bikes were so heavy at the time. Um but yeah so that started Toby and I's um love hate relationship with bike pushing and hiker bikes and um yeah we we're kinda of at this point where we really liked riding with each other and we really liked the routes um and we both wanted to ride the both of the Puna routes. Mm -hmm. and so we had our eyes set on on that um but yeah as anything happens you know once you spend a lot of time with someone you're like oh do we really want to do this or do we want to go do our own journeys i think we're both quite torn up in like in this way where you know we wanted to do these trips um but we also wanted to have our own element to it and i think we spent like two or three days apart we were just like when are we meeting up like we've got to go ride these routes together and Uh, yeah, so we had a little bit of time apart from each other just when we left Santiago, but we planned on meeting up um, to finish the routes together. And so, yeah, Toby and I rode pretty much from the Carretera Austral all the way to San Pedro de Atacama, so most of Chile and Argentina. And then we met up as well in Bolivia, um, Bolivia, Peru, Bolivia and Peru as well, just um, for some shorter rides and things. But, yeah, so he was the second person I rode with besides Clayton, who I started the journey with. And then the other person that I rode with mostly was Javi. And he was, yeah, on par with Toby, like very generous, very humble, spoke three languages. He was fluent in Spanish, French. um, Nice. So
2: that must have helped in communicating
3: along the way. What's that? That must have helped with
2: uh, communicating along the way with with locals.
3: Oh, 100% because (laughs) I'd be listening in on these Spanish conversations thinking that they're saying one thing and then I'd talk to him and I'd be like, oh, I couldn't have been further off what they were saying. It's so funny. (laughs) Um, Yeah, so we ended up riding through Peruvian rainy season and we went through all of Peru and... Most of Ecuador together. I think we rode together for it was a couple of months. Maybe it was like two and a half months or three months. But yeah, huge. Like yeah, the routes that we did together. So much climbing every day, and it was really hard going. But like, it was just the most amazing experience. And I don't think I could have ever done that if I wasn't sharing the experience with anyone. Um, um, So yeah, we really pushed each other in a lot of ways. that made the journey more adventurous and um, he obviously helped me traverse that country a lot more sustainably, being able to know what people were saying, being able to know you know, what was on the road ahead and just for my own mental and emotional health, just being able to talk to someone and you know, being able to have a, a relaxing day and be able to laugh at things. It was really, really good. He's got a great sense of humor too. So yeah. And this helps. It was amazing. <laughs> yeah.
0: We're still missing yeah. one little piece, actually, Nathan. The food.
3: The food. Oh, yeah, sorry. No friends ways. went for ages. <laughs> um, but, yeah, huge emphasis on friends. And so I rode probably half the time apart, uh, half the time by myself, and then the rest of the time with friends. And, yeah, I ride with friends any day of the week now. Um, and then the food. <laughs> so, um, at the start, it was very budget-friendly. Um, and it was just one pot. One Pot Wonders, so whatever local grains I could get, like a lot of quinoa, a lot of rice dishes, a lot of pasta, things like that. Um, And then by the time I got towards Peru, Ecuador and all that, like if I could eat lunch out, I would because it was so cheap and it wasn't worth my time and money um, making food. I just felt like for what I could buy for that price, Um, you know, you go to the supermarket and then it's like, oh, you want to buy a chocolate or you want to buy this and because you're doing such big days as well, you just want a really nourishing food. And so, yeah, we'd often get lunch and then even get like a little takeaway container of something, um, if we could. Um, yeah. And in Peru, it was really, they had this really good pasta sauce as well. So we'd often make pasta, um, and just get whatever local veggies and things that we could um, when we weren't near any towns and that. So that really helped as well.
2: Were yeah. you carrying one or two pans?
3: One or... Oh, um, I carried one pan, I think, 99% of the time. I did have a small frying pan for a little bit because I was fly fishing. But um, I ended up giving the pan away because I ended up most of the time just catching and releasing. So,
2: yeah. yeah. I uh, I yeah. have this... Uh hopes and dreams when it comes to a little frying pan because we we used to carry one for a long time but then it it was one of the cheap ones and i don't think even if you go higher in price they they ever have a non-stick you know sustainable non-stick performance so it just never happened for us that we used to cook with two pans and so the one one pan meal kind of uh, approach uh, became a, a whole new challenge and discovery because you can do so much in one pan. You tend to become quite advanced with it if you focus on it.
3: Was that yeah, it's absolutely you? unbelievable. Like some of the meals that we were cooking up, it was like, are we really living in tents on the side of a road? Like this is delicious. <laughs> yeah, <awesome. laughs> yeah, and you become so inventive and it's, yeah, it absolutely – blew me away how good some of our meals were like even like thinking about how good they were like I'd eat them any day of the week here but yeah as all good things as what happens with all good things you seem to forget them and you don't write those recipes down and it's like damn <laughs> wait till the next time I get on the bike and I'll work them out again <laughs>
0: great yeah great great um yes uh I would go actually through that with the last question that I know it will take a lot of emotion from us. Do you have a highlight, Nathan, and the low light moment of your trip? And if we cannot put the third part of it, highlight, low light, and one of the craziest, funniest, weirdest anecdotes that you can tell us.
3: Yeah. Um. All right. So highlights. Friends. Well, yeah, 100%. Like friends and also the generosity of the people. Like. Completely changed my life. Like there's so many good people out there to like to the point where on my whole trip um, I only felt threatened a handful of times um, by other people. Um, I had in my whole trip I only had a Leatherman stolen, so like a simple knife which was taken when I wasn't even watching because I left it on a table in a hostel. Mm Mm-hmm um i never got yeah held a gunpoint or no one ever threatened me with a knife and you know i went into this trip actually thinking like you know i could die like there's a possibility that i could die on this journey and so yeah coming back and being like wow like i yeah not so many of these things um happen um there, so that was does, the high highlight there, there, definitely no, the
2: I wanted to say that it turned out that your water bottles were more dangerous than uh, a (laughs) knife or a
3: gunpoint. Oh, 100%. They definitely could have been.
2: (laughs) Didn't want to interrupt too much, but I had
3: to say it. Yeah, (laughs) no, you're exactly right. But I also think that's this common misconception with riding these gravel roads. Like When you do ride these routes in the mountains, um, often... The people there, um, they're not so financially um, influenced by Western ideas of wealth. So they see you riding by on a bike and they don't think that you're rich because you don't have a car. So the last thing that they're really thinking of is robbing this gringo in the middle of nowhere Um, because, yeah, I don't know. But so I never felt threatened like that. Um, In the cities, it was a little bit different, but... Yeah, I've, I always felt safe. I could always camp away from a road um, and that really helped as well. So, yeah, people were incredibly generous to the point of like giving me food or giving me too much food, conversations, and, yeah, it was just absolutely remarkable. Um, friends also huge. Um, friends made that I'll have forever. Um, the whole entirety of the Andes range, um, but – I'd say my highlights were definitely Patagonia. Um, Yeah, Patagonia was insane. Um, The Puna, like the Atacama Desert, Altiplano, Bolivia. Um, Peru was a highlight for the mountains. Like the mountains there are just so, so mesmerizing. They're so aggressive and just, yeah, I don't know. And there's a lot of history in those mountains as well. And then, yeah, wherever the mountains or the landscape wasn't the highlight, the people of that place were the highlights. So, yeah. And then I guess the lowlights were – kind of came along. I was about – oh, I was a year and a bit into the trip and my friend Kai – oh, it was this week of absolute torture. So what happened was like – my friend Kyle and I—we planned on uh, meeting up with some other friends. You might have read the article; is in the most recent um, bike packing journal. Okay. Uh, it was titled "Alpamayo Disaster." But long story short, I had a friend that I was riding with, and we we're making this film, and he fell off a cliff. Wow! And like, was so close to dying. It was just an absolute miracle that he survived. Um, but yeah, he fell off like a eight meter cliff. I think it was, I don't remember exactly how big it was, but it was huge. It was like falling off almost a two-story building. And if he rolled another like three or four meters, he would have fell off another 50-meter cliff. So it would have been completely done for. Um, So we had a pretty crazy evacuation there. So that really rattled me and it um, kind of shook up my foundations of like, you know, what do I want to be doing when I'm in these countries? Because this is terrifying. This is terrifying my family and my friends and like, is it really what I want to be doing? Um, and just before that as well, we had another friend that was meant to come out on that route with us, um, Guillaume and he just had this random thing happen with his eyes where he's, I believe it was the retina or this cord that connects the eyeball to the brain, okay, um, started wearing away and it like almost severed and, um, he was, yeah, his eye was. His vision was impaired and his sight was quite blurry, but he was a really, really funny guy, and so we just always make jokes about it. And we never knew if he was serious. And then one day, this guy just turned up at our hostel, and he's like, "No, you need to go get that checked out. It could be really, really serious." And so he was literally after that conversation with that guy saying it could be really, really serious. He was um, evacuated out of South America within three days. So wow, just yeah absolutely crazy and he like that's a problem that's not really repairable either you know so he's um struggling a little bit with that at the moment with both eyes actually um but still a very optimistic person but yeah so that all happened within a week and then Kyle the other guy that I was with that was filming who helped get Kyle rescued um he was leaving as well so I was more or less just by myself and I was like whoa like what am I going to do and that was actually yeah well, Chavi, so um so that was a really really tough moment and I think yeah the toughest moment of the whole trip because it was like I could so easily just fly home and give up but I thought about it and it's like well what made that part of the journey dangerous and some of the routes that we were riding were quite dangerous and riding alone which I did quite a lot um was also quite dangerous in my mind um especially on the edge of cliffs and things like that so i was like well if i'm going to ride uh by myself like i've got to keep the roots you know a little bit more g-rated yeah in
2: in, in so. reverse it must have um taught you some like very valuable lessons in the moment because it's often said that when someone has an experience you know close to death or or something horrible happened to them that that it humbles and it it makes them feel fortunate about being alive or just, you know, no matter what they do, feeling happy that they're able to do it. And the fact that you got out of that week, you know, just fine, probably made you feel good about the fact that you could go on, if uh, if I'm not wrong about that.
3: Yeah, 100%. It was really weird because I like I didn't physically know how I was meant to deal with those emotions. So the first thing I did was I just wrote a huge recount of the incident, which is what got published in bike um, packing journal. Um, And yeah, it was just strange because you don't like, it's not a normal experience to have someone really close to you almost die straight in front of your eyes. Um, And so, yeah, like you said, I was just so, so grateful to have my own, um, you know, even to have my sight, like Giam almost lost his sight. Kai almost lost his legs and his life. So yeah, I was so grateful for so many things. And also, just that richness of having other people around and if i could ride with other people i'd always take that option so yeah
0: so you are telling yeah, me that quite action- a week oh sorry no go ahead no i was telling you just for me to understand so basically you wrote the article for the backpacking journal then about that
3: yeah exactly
0: oh okay so it's the one that is going to be shipped now i think now for us we are in the 19th no, of the april oh ah, the one before yeah. Okay, yeah. okay. Not just because I would love to to find it out and read about that, because it looks like really something like really eventful, period. So, yeah. Yeah, I
1: remember yeah. watching the, the movie that you uploaded. Oh, yeah, there's a
3: film, actually, as well, yeah, with, yeah. Calm, right?
1: it, with the fall. That's the fall caught on video. And the, yeah. and the silent,
2: it's good. It's yeah. the, the honest reaction there, just that moment, it's very, it's like time is standing still. It's It's something that... Because um, Belen and, and I, we don't do very um, risky? The, the risky cycling, so to say. We, we don't really go on those kind of trails. And
1: if it's uh, risky, we just get off and push. Or... Yeah,
2: yeah, and so we, we haven't been close to those moments at all. But having been so close to that, it must have been a, like a chilling experience. Because it, it can happen anytime to any of us on bikes out there in the wilderness. Um just just to, to to like tease one little thing in the in the chapter you are talking about this um e eperb or something like that what what's it
3: called? yeah so an eperb is it's a like it's an emergency beacon um so it's like you press it and it sends out a signal um, to emergency services of oh no sorry it sends a signal back to the company garmin. And then they contact local emergency services with your exact GPS location and say, get these people out now. There's an, a medical emergency. So,
2: so did you actually end up using that
3: on, on your trip? Yeah. And I'd only had it for three weeks. Wow. Yeah. My, my. Oh, wow. So yeah, all this other time that I rode without it, like 16-day stretches without resupply. And I wow. think I did three or four of those. And then that to happen then it was just like wow could have
0: been so bad yeah Yeah. absolutely absolutely crazy yeah anyways then send me all the links so everything is going to be down in the description the film as well so i can watch it everybody can watch it this would be great
3: yeah no
0: problem. Uh, anecdote funny anecdote that actually happened. I don't know I've seen actually from your Instagram and from your blog whatever uh, I don't know something like uh, dead llamas on your way or whatever but <laughs> tell me more about something funny that happened during the way.
3: Um, oh kind of got me on the spot a little bit. Um, there's a few funny things that happened I think I think the best one which I was saying before was you know like I rode, pretty much a straight line all the way to a day and a half from Bogota. And then I was riding through this mud and my whole entire back wheel just got caked in mud, the derailleur and the whole wheel pretty much just gave up, like broke four um, sprockets. Oh, not sprockets, spokes, um, broke my whole derailleur. And I was no joke, like 100 Ks from reaching Bogota. And I was like, that's the end of my journey.
0: Yeah. (laughs) <laughs>
3: That's it, right here in this muddy patch. Like, this is the end of my journey. I've got to roll my bike back to town. I'm getting a bus, and I am done.
0: I'm out of here.
3: <laughs> yeah, I'm out of here. This is where the journey ends. So, yeah, I thought that mud patch—it so it had funny. plans
2: for you. It's like, oh, here he's coming. Here he's coming. Yeah, try to grab his back wheel, guys.
3: <laughs> yeah, a hundred percent. And it was—it was really interesting because I think, like, I really struggled at the start to accept lifts and things like that. Um, Even towards the end, I really struggled to accept them. Um, In fact, I never really accepted them. Um, So, yeah, so that was really, really funny. Um, Other things that weren't really so funny but looking back were how many times it felt like I was going to die from food poisoning. Oh. Um, Yeah, like just being caught on these mountain passes, like filling up water from the most beautiful like glacial meltwater and then just getting like absolutely paralyzed for like two days, um, you know, two days from town. So, yeah, with big passes in between. So that was quite scary. Um, Other funny moments or I don't know if it's really funny, but it was just quite amazing on that journey um meeting so many people that inspired me to do my trip um when I was in Santiago I met um met Tanelli and stayed with him for a few weeks or not a few weeks but like 10 days in Santiago um and you know there was all these logistical problems riding tires that were so big in South America but somehow it just always worked out that someone was coming along at the right time when you needed new tires And they could bring them over because otherwise the import tax was like double from the U.S. So you could get the tires, but instead of them being like $100 tires, they'd be like $250 tires by the end of it. So, yeah, it was really interesting how all of that worked out. Um, Yeah, and just, yeah, the fact that I got by so easily without without any problems really. Um, Yeah, I think I'll... That's all I can really think of at the moment. Yeah. Or, and actually, no, there's one more. And it's like whenever you're having the worst day. Okay. For some reason, the best thing happens on the worst day. It's like, true. Yeah. Yeah. You'd be in the biggest dumps and you'd just be having the worst day and you're trying to be positive. And then the most amazing thing would happen. Like I had this one night on the Salada Uni and I just received this news from back home. Um, that was quite personal mm-hmm. and you know I was riding out onto the Salada Uni and I was looking for places to pitch my tent and I was like well it's a Salada like you can't put pegs into the uh, into the salt crystals so I was like I'm just going to bivy and I just laid down and I had the most spectacular night of my life just watching these shooting stars laying in the middle of the Salada Uni hoping that no one would run me over um, but yeah it was just remarkable so yeah, just absolutely incredible how, uh, yeah, you can go from having such a crap day to having such a good day in so little amount of time, whether it's within your own head that things change or whether it's someone else that you meet. Yeah, I just thought that that just blew me away. The literal and figurative ups and downs of yeah. physical travel. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. There's no better metaphor, is there? Yeah.
0: Well, I would say yeah. that from my side, I emptied my tank of questions. Do you have something else that you want to add, Tristan and Belan, or Nathan? Something else that Mike is open for all of us.
2: I uh, I think I wanna I wanna ask one question on the, continuing on the anecdotes. Go ahead. Um, there is a there's a picture in your chapter, Nathan, where you're pushing your bike up a snowy pass, very snowy, and it looks. It looks very, uh, very tough. And I just, if you can remember, I just want to know what went through your head while you were pushing up that uh, that pass in the snow.
3: I think I know the exact pass. I think it's um, one that was on the Osengate circuit. Um, but yeah, obviously pushing through snow is not something that you really do for fun. But there was also all those compounding factors of like, the altitude and all these things and in my mind it was always like all right you just walk 10 steps and then you stop you breathe and then you just keep going when you can and yeah there was so like just thinking about i'd actually call it suffering now like it was some of those areas but also the beauty and reward when you get to the top and then you just ride this single track that You know, only a handful of people have ever ridden. And it's the Andes. So this single track can sometimes go for 30 or 40 kilometers, like, down these mountains. And it was just, yeah, this, like, suffering versus reward and just being out there. Yeah, and I guess experiencing everything for what it is. It's like, you know, it's cold, but look how beautiful it is and what would it look like if there was no snow, you know? I don't know. Nice. That was
2: And if I can say mine (laughs) actually,
0: there, that photo is just epic. So, whatever, I sound like an Instagram addicted, but whatever for that pick, man. It's great.
3: (laughs) (laughs) That was also, it's funny that you mentioned that because I reckon in my head as well, there was probably something saying, like, this looks so brutal. People are going to like this photo. So yeah, obviously I documented a lot with the photos and I think there was probably certain parts of the trip that it's like, this is going to be epic, like I've got to stop and I've got to get the photos of this, so... Uh,
0: yeah. just putting a bit of context there so you are telling me the texture you took your camera gopro whatever you had maybe your phone you drop it there then you went down and then you climbed back by pushing your bike just for the photo that's what you are telling me
3: yeah and <laughs> obviously you get up the mountain to get the camera back but yeah of course
0: <laughs> but as i would say uh, i don't want to say hopefully nobody will listen to that so we can keep the secret but Hopefully everybody will listen to that and will see how much effort there is also for just one photo in this crazy and epic situation. So that's great.
3: Yeah, there's always a story behind the photo. There yeah, it's never just like a oh, this is just a day in the life. It's like especially if you're traveling solo, it's like all those photos or all that that footage is, you know, someone's yeah, Go to a lot of effort one person that comes to mind is actually i don't know if you guys follow the other australian ali denham but no i don't Den, Den, i forget his surname absolute legend but some of the footage that he gets it's like wow he's riding a long way from that camera down a hill it's going to take him half an hour to ride back up and get that camera like, okay and and he he uh also fell off a cliff with the bike and
2: everything <laughs> yeah um, it's quite a story, but he even documented that. So imagine yeah. how far he goes there because there is a oh. photo of him just holding the camera, like kind of, uh, butchered down this, down this, uh, this cliff with his bike in pieces. And he's just, he takes the photo. So the guy yeah. is dedicated. Um yeah, he's pleased you know that you can find him in, in 50 ways to
3: cycle the world. <laughs> oh, <laughs> we have okay. a chapter oh, my to him. Gosh. <laughs> Yes, I'm so excited. I am waiting for the
0: book to arrive. I'm so excited. Now probably I'm going to actually after this talk I'm going to actually give a call to the uh, to the post service here. Where's my book? Yeah.
3: yeah. yeah. <laughs>
2: customs. Get it through the customs. Come on. It's fine already.
0: Hopefully, hopefully. Yeah,
2: we we're, we're pleased to say that uh, at the time of this recording, the the books are going to go out soon. And um, yeah, but by the time that this is up, they they are available, so you can discover Nathan's story.
1: Yeah, we're really Ali's excited story. because actually, almost no, I would say no one in the books knows very much who else is in the books. so well, it's going to be a surprise yeah. for everyone. But I must say yeah. that not only Ali, but at least one or two people that you've mentioned today are also in the book. That's all I say. Oh, it's beautiful. very nice because it's it's such a a big and small community at the same time. That at the end of the day, you always know. Someone that has known this other person, and eventually we all kind of know each other by by names and surnames or, or Instagram uh handles. <laughs> so it's very lovely. It's a very closed and uh, great community. Yeah, yeah, definitely, absolutely,
0: absolutely. Uh, just I want to say the last thing about photos and everything. I don't know, people. This is <laughs> something like um. Watching Suggestions by Stefano. Uh, I don't know if people, you follow the Vox channel, the Vox News channel on the YouTube, but there is actually yeah. a miniseries. The name of it is Dark Room. And they actually... Yeah. Put together again all the story behind all the stories behind the some of the most important photos, and I really, really, really recommend it because there are some stuff that are amazing. That there is, for example, um, the adventure in the South Pole in Antarctica and all the story around that photo that is pretty iconic. Of um, they were actually the. Um, uh, Scottish people, the English people, uh, they are taking a photo and actually admitting their defeat against the Swedish uh, group. And yeah. then after that, there is all the story of everybody that actually unfortunately died on that trip and how it's rebuilt, how it's reconstructed. It's so amazing. Wow. I'm a fan of Vox News, but yeah, for Vox News, not <laughs> Fox News. Vox, yeah. Cl- exactly. Dark room you from Vox. You just saved Vox. it there, Stefan. No, exactly. We were
2: about to sign off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No.
0: Vox, vox, V-O-X, not fox. Right.
2: Yeah. <laughs> it, it's amazing to to see how much how much effort uh, and and situations just went into a single photograph from time to time. So same with Nathan. It's uh, it's pretty incredible. too. it it gives you a perception of oh you know okay this actually happened and this there there was this much effort in in this image capturing that particular moment. I I just wanna uh, uh, ask the last question from my side. Yeah. Nathan, uh, now that you've been teaching, you know the the past year, uh, have the kids that you've taught ever asked you about your adventures? And have you have you explained it to them or or shown it to them? You must be quite a legend for them.
3: I, I assume.
0: <laughs> you are for um, us. You are for uh, us. You're a legend for us. <laughs> Who cares about your kids? I'm kidding.
3: Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, thank you. Um, yeah, so I actually. When I got back, um, there was some schools that I'd go to where the kids couldn't even remember me because at the time I was working as a relief teacher, um, but it ended up becoming this kind of, I'd kind of have this half an hour, like get to know me in the morning, um, like if I was on a new class, and so I'd just go in and I'd be like, all right, this is who I am, this is where I've been, you've probably heard that you know, I've been away for a while, and blah, blah, and then I had like 50 photos and I'd just go through these 50 photos and it'd just be like a QA. and a and sometimes like there was teachers that were in the class that had to go and do other teacher stuff and I remember one day this teacher actually hung around for the half an hour and was just like, oh my God, that was absolutely amazing and from, from – by doing that, the kids could kind of understand that, you know – I'm not this robot that just turns up for work every day. Like, there's a story behind the person that I am, and there's a story behind the way that I like to do things. Um, and so, yeah, I helped. I think that that really helped the kids understand me. Like, I remember when I was in primary school, I actually thought some of the teachers were robots that were just programmed to come to school and do the same thing, like, every single day, um, year by year. And so, for me, it was like, yeah. That was really big. And some of the questions that came from the kids as well, it just absolutely blew my mind. Like they were so engaged and they were so interested. Um, yeah, and often they shredded harder on a mountain bike than I did as well. <laughs> <laughs> I've just been riding a bike for like two years. It was crazy. They're like, Mr. Roberts, check out this jump I did on the weekend. You're like, you're a maniac. <laughs> I've never tried like. that
0: for me it happens yeah. actually the other happened the other way around I was there and actually I don't know having a talk for example at university or whatever uh, during my class and stuff having a chat with a, uh, with a professor and I was telling her look I actually made this amazing ride uh, on the weekend or whatever and then say okay hold my beer please and they were showing me the, all the shredding that the professor was doing during the weekend it was the other yeah. way around so there is always a good perspective well, on that
3: wow well. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, well thankfully none of the kids have done a bicycle journey that's that big, so that helps yet. a little bit. Yeah. You haven't been challenged just yet. 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 Yes. Yeah. 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 Yeah.
0: <laughs> Perfect people. I would say that yep. was a great and lovely chat with you today. And uh, yeah, I don't know, to everybody out there. I'm going to let this thing said, actually, by Tristan and Belen. Do you want to talk about where people can find, again, the amazing story and the amazing photos of Nathan?
2: Yeah, so Nathan has a website, uh, which I'm quite a fan of. I particularly like his gear list. Uh, So (laughs) you can check that out. I'm sure, Stefano, you can link it in the description. Absolutely. I think it's nathannorth.wordpress.com, if I'm saying it correctly.
3: Yeah, I believe that's correct. I actually really want to put more content on that in do the it. coming year as well. So do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then,
2: then uh, you also have an Instagram page, don't you?
3: Yeah, I haven't been so active on Instagram lately um, because life's taken a huge turn from you know living on a bike to actually having to make ends meet, um, having a job and expenses and things like that, saving more money to do more trips. Um so yeah but I once I do start digging back through that archive of photos um I'll put them up it just often yeah because I'm working so much at the moment it's kind of hard to justify being back on a screen again so yeah, yeah. Well,
2: that's but incredible. it will happen yeah yeah what what are you planning for your for your next trips if I may ask um
3: what are the
2: dreams and desires
3: Yeah, I'm not too sure at the moment. Like when I left South America, I had this big dream of um, doing a big trip through Central Asia. Um, And after such a big trip as well, I kind of told myself that I didn't want to do trips. I didn't want to do multi-year trips anymore because I feel like a lot of the time was spent, you know, resting or, um, yeah, just getting myself back together and getting ready to do other sections. I feel like I'd rather just go in with a bike that's, you know, ready to go, know that there's not going to be problems. Um, So kind of probably a few trips, um, maybe even like less than two weeks, just shorter trips around Australia, um, riding a lot more single track around my hometown. Um, And because Australia is such a big place, um, probably a few more car trips as well um, with my partner. So, yeah, that's the plan. But we'll see. I would love to get to Central Asia, and I'd love to get to Europe. Um, but with this whole COVID thing at the moment, like, apparently Australians aren't going to be able to go for another two years.
2: So. There, there, yeah. there is some kind of travel bubble, right, with New Zealand. Do you, would you, would yeah. you go to
3: New Zealand to cycle there again? In a heartbeat. Mm. Yeah.
2: Nice. yeah. Awesome. Uh,
0: yeah. So, just because actually you named it for the only time of the interview? COVID, Uh. (laughs) I am putting some coin in my COVID jar, and uh, as everybody knows, probably nobody knows, probably somebody knows, uh, all the time that we are naming anything related to COVID in this podcast, I am dropping a coin into my COVID jar, and all the money are going to go, yes, in charity, for this charity, the name of it is Sea Watch, who is an NGO rescuing refugees in the central Mediterranean. So thanks a lot for naming it, so I could also name it my COVID jar and everything together.
2: And and uh, we want to say thanks to you, Stefano, because you brought something up. Uh, it's something that is uh, is a bit under the the skin of the book, but uh, we want to make sure that it is known. Yeah. And it's actually something we've dedicated to from the start, as Nathan will know from the, the conversation we had just about over a year ago, to uh, to get him integrated into the book. Uh, Fifty Ways to Cycle the World is such a it's been such a huge community project. Like Belen already said, we all know each other and we're all part of the same. The same game here. So we decided that uh, for for our part, because we, we are allowed to send uh, to sell signed copies by our publisher. And so when we do that uh, and the sales go live, which by the point of this podcast going live, the sales have gone live, our parts of the profits will actually be donated to an organization related to cycling. Uh, we're sort of tinkering between warm showers and World Bicycle Relief at the moment. Uh, those will definitely be the two that, uh, that will see donations in the future. But this is a, a nice little aspect of uh, of Fifty Ways as well, just to benefit back into the community of traveling cyclists.
0: Great, great. That's super nice, also because, as you were saying, I mean, I don't know if I will, I'm gonna put it in a super harsh way, but actually, everything that we are doing here is not for from us to the community but the way back is given to us to the community because just talking with amazing people like Nathan today also myself talking with you guys last time and now organizing this thing together is everything that is given to us that we're trying to share the world from the community so it's always good to give something back to the community whatever is the way whatever is the uh, the amount whatever is the thing that we are doing and that's super good actually to put a bit more of effort on making this community grow absolutely Perfect, people. Then I would say thanks a lot. It was an amazing and great chat, and everybody out there, just keep yourself with your eyes, actually with your ears, pretty open, because more content is going to arrive, another uh, bunch of amazing interviews are going to come, and yes, we're going to have still a lot of fun talking with super inspiring people like Nathan today. Nathan, thanks a lot for this chat today.
3: Thanks, Stefano. Can I just say one more thing? Um, There's obviously a lot of people that I didn't mention today um, that I feel a little bit guilty for not mentioning um, who really, really helped me on my journey and answered a lot of questions. They were friends that I'd never met and I felt like I could tell them anything that was happening on the road. Um, And I think they know exactly who they are. Um, So I'll just say a huge thank you to those people um, yeah. And anyone that just sent a message or even commented on a photo, it always means a lot or anyone that's just found, yeah, my page or my story now, because it's, yeah, sometimes you like, you just go about your daily life and you just completely forget that you actually did this big thing. And it's nice to be reminded of it sometimes or that you've helped someone. So, yeah. So thank you. And thank you to both of you as well. You've done such a good job with this podcast and also with the book. I just can't believe the amount of hours and effort that you guys put in. It's such an incredible, such an incredible book. Um, And yeah, I think the broader cycle community could really benefit from having such a a piece out there. So yeah, you've done a great job.
0: Nice. Well, I will finish with, of course, Thanks for to Tristan and Belen to put out actually this amazing issue with this amazing book. But thank you, Nathan, for your adventures and everything that you are pushing out there in the internet, but also just with these kind of talks. It's always super good to have such an inspiring people like a person like you are and everybody there in the community, because it's possible. Just get a bike, whatever it is, a clunker, whatever it is, go out on the bike. Even if you're not going to South America for two years, but just in your backyard for two hours, it's amazing.
2: Yeah. Well, wow, this yeah, podcast is yeah, really turning out as, uh, to be as sweet as your beeswax on uh, on your bags, Nathan. We're, <laughs> we're making this sound so sweet.
3: <laughs> yeah, but that's the thing. It's like don't be limited by like what you have. Don't be limited by, um, yeah. Just be more creative about things, and yeah, just go have a go. Like you've got nothing to lose. Yeah.
0: Yeah. 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 Great people. Then thanks a lot. I will wrap it here by saying, talk to you soon.
3: Yeah, we'll see talk you, to soon. you soon. So, Thanks so much. See you guys.
0: Bye bye bye. Well, everybody, I hope you liked this first episode of the 50 Ways on the Broom Wagon, and I hope that you enjoyed the amazing talk that we had with Nathan. So many things to say. So uh, the thing that I love the most about Nathan is his approach. Seems like everything is super easy. Seems like everything is gonna set in the right place. Even if uh, you will see it, because down below in the description, I'm gonna also tag uh, the video that we were talking about. Well, even in the bad situation, always trying to squeeze all the good of the good things and always with the right thirst of exploring and exploring something more of the outdoors. In something more of the of yourself i have to say really thanks to nathan for being part of this podcast thanks 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 to tristan and belen to have me on putting together this amazing series of interview thanks to komoot for supporting all these projects and thank you for listening to that i know we went above two hours but if you want, you can split these episodes in many times, but I really think that actually, for me, editing this episode, it was just one breath. It was super easy to do it. And also I was interested in every single word of Nathan and to the help of Tristan and Belen adding all the time, new things on and new topics on the talk. So thanks a lot for all of you. And if you also like this episode like I did, please feel free to share it with everybody your social media, or personally to the people that you care the most and you think that can take advantage of a talk like this. And remember, you can still, um, what can you do? Raid, subscribe, whatever you want to do, because this episode is on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spreaker, all the platform for podcasting. Happy Bicycle Day! and talk to you next Thursday for the second episode of the Broom Wagon the 50 ways on the Broom Wagon bye